Welcome to Indefinable Magic. Nothing serious, nothing political. Just random thoughts pieced together and inspired by a television program about, well, monsters and stuff. It is written and presented by me, Toby Haydoke. And this episode is... I wish Bernard was here. The rocket group's got its own problems. A fairly innocuous aside from scientists Rachel and Alison in remembrance of the Daleks, if you want it to, canonises one of the great science fiction icons of all time, Professor Bernard Quatermass who later gets a mention thanks to giddily eccentric scientist Malcolm in the story Planet of the Dead. Malcolm, who, it has to be said, is something of a... hushed whisper... fan, has named a measurement after himself. One Malcolm is a wavelength parcel of 10khz operating in four dimensions. To put that into context, he tells us that one Bernard is 100 Malcolms. He's yet to think of a unit of measurement going past... 500 Bernards. A Bernard, he says, is named after Quatermass, but it's not clear whether he's naming them after a real-life person or a TV character. Let's be honest, though, couple that with the oblique remembrance of the Daleks reference and you can make a pretty strong case for the existence of Quatermass in the real-life world of Doctor Who. Or not, of course, if you don't want to. And that's really the point. There are, I believe, though, some Doctor Who fans out there who have never seen Quatermass. And I don't mean the movies. You may have caught them on Talking Pictures or, if you're ancient like me, Late Night on Channel 4 or some such when black and white films weren't expected to send young people running to the hills and joining ISIS because they couldn't cope with anything from the olden days. But I'm specifically talking today about the TV series. The Quatermass Experiment, Quatermass 2 and Quatermass and the Pit, broadcast respectively in 1953, 1955 and 1958-59. Each one looks and feels markedly different from the next, bar a rich seam of chilling, intelligent and atmospheric black-and-white gorgeousness, which is a testament to a production team learning technical tricks and mastering a fledgling medium with dizzying speed. The first Quatermass serial is entirely live, bar fragments of pre-filmed material or stock footage. Fragments. And has a pioneering zeal and defiant spookiness only exacerbated by the primitive way its surviving two episodes have been preserved for posterity. Pointing a film camera at a large screen which, in the case of the second episode, results in a fly landing on the lens and deciding to photobomb the action. And so, in 1953... This ambitious and intelligent serial is made with extremely clunky and primitive camera work. The cameras were unwieldy and heavy and extremely difficult to manoeuvre around Alexandra Palace, where the Quatermass experiment was made. Whilst just five years later, Quatermass and the Pit feels epic. A mixture of pre-filmed footage, filmed by A.A. Englander, whose name would adorn many later Doctor Who episodes, done on a huge set at Ealing, and some on location and live performance, cracking, fizzing with urgency and dread, 
with nimble cameras and effective lighting. Watching the Quatermass serials in order is like watching television grow up. And you can trace their lineage to Doctor Who. Quatermass writer Nigel Neal, a genius in all areas except that he hated Doctor Who, was approached to write for our beloved programme several times. He refused and was quick in his condemnation, largely based on the fact that he thought it too terrifying for children. Quatermass famously comes with a warning that it is, to quote the plummy voiceover preceding some of the episodes, not suitable for children or for those of you who may have a nervous disposition. Now, don't judge Neil on his view of Doctor Who. He hated Doomwatch too, and the X-Files. He could be quite caustic about a lot of things. He'd probably have called Bod a twat if asked, and clubbed Geoffrey from Rainbow to death. He probably hates Game of Thrones from beyond the grave. His grasp of intelligent science fiction and his position as the granddaddy of British TV science fiction did nothing to make him look fondly upon his progeny. He's a bit like the person who invented sport, deciding that football was a bit too mucky and cricket a bit too complicated. Quatermass doesn't really look, feel or sound like Doctor Who. Yes, the work of the BBC Radiophonic Workshop does feature in Quatermass and the Pit, but it is somehow more ancient, discordant and disturbing than anything found in the soundscape of 60s Who, which is offbeat, weird and unsettling. The stock music used in Quatermass never, funnily enough, finds its way to any 60s episodes, somehow being more bombastic, maybe just a little too 1950s for we 60s guys. There is little crossover cast-wise. Surprising, as there weren't so many actors doing TV in the 1950s, you'd think they'd all end up in Doctor Who at some point, but it's not the case. One of the stars of the Quatermass experiment, however, is Duncan Lamont, who grumbles his way through Death to the Daleks a couple of decades later. Here, he is the largely silent Victor Caroon, lone survivor of the Quatermass rocket that returns to Earth having embarked upon the first ever spaceflight and crashes down in Wimbledon, reminding terrified residents and viewers at home of the recent Blitz. To those expecting Quatermass, as legend has it to be, to be a spooky fright fest from start to finish, all cobwebs and voodoo, the comedic seam running through it will be something of a surprise. In fact, a lot of the very first episode of Quatermass is a series of amusing characters reacting to the unimaginable with Britishness. Stoicism, cynicism, drunkenness, all present and correct. The plot of the Quatermass experiment is fairly simple. The rocket went up with three astronauts, but only one returns, and he is not quite himself. Doctor Who has had its fair share of infected spacefarers, notably Noah in The Ark in Space, and the battle between the host's latent humanity and the alien infection is mined for all its dramatic potential in both series. And the ultimately uplifting ending relies on that residue of humanity triumphing. Noah blows himself and the wooden up, but the conclusion of the Quatermass experiment, despite the appearance of the army, relies less on gunfire and explosions, and more literally on an appeal to humanity 
as Quatermass faces down the monstrous mutation that his friend has become, which clings like poison ivy to Westminster Abbey in a climax not unlike that of the Lazarus experiment, which wears its influence in its title and emphasises it with the presence of Mark Gatiss as the villain. Gatiss is a self-confessed fan of Quatermass and appeared in the 2005 BBC Live remake of The Quatermass Experiment and also wrote Nightshade, his new adventure novel, which pays homage to the serials throughout its pages. Gatiss's script for the David Tennant adventure The Idiot's Lantern is set mere weeks before The Quatermass Experiment, which capitalised on the rush of purchases for TVs that resulted from the Queen's coronation and the faceless residents of Florizel Street clench and unclench their hands like the cinematic version of Victor Caroon does, this time played equally compellingly by Richard Wordsworth, who has never been in Doctor Who. The film also ends at Westminster Abbey because it was deliberately chosen for the climax very early on in the scripting process of the original serial. Neil wasn't daft. The Caroon monster seeks refuge in Westminster Abbey for a reason. Viewers getting used to this new box of lights in the corner were fresh from seeing momentous events, the Queen's coronation, in the very same building. Neil also harnessed the methodology of Orson Welles and saw the conclusion of the Quatermass experiment through the eyes of the media. A BBC TV van is making a documentary about Westminster Abbey and catches sight of the monster in the rafters. These pictures are broadcast to the fictional nation as the actual nation watches, and both are filled with horror. When Russell T. Davis brought Doctor Who back, many of his earthbound stories got exposition out and emphasised the global scale of the danger with economy by constantly cutting to international newsrooms. These devices can trace their lineage right back to the Quatermass serials, which feature TV and radio coverage in newsrooms here and abroad. The media is very important to Neil's storytelling techniques. He was the son of a journalist, and his most memorable character beyond Quatermass himself is an eloquent reporter called James Fullerlove, played in The Quatermass Experiment by sometime Doctor Who guest star Paul Whitson-Jones, who later pops up in The Smugglers and as the Marshal in The Mutants. He's great in The Quatermass Experiment and gets all the best lines. That technical jargon, it's mankind trying to sound sure of himself, because he knows out there, beyond the air, lies a new wilderness, pitch dark both day and night, empty and cold. This slightly florid hack displays telling moments of conscience and perception, doggedly pursuing the professor and augmenting his investigations with cheery bon mots and cynical asides. The Quatermass experiment features some chilling moments, notably when Karun starts speaking in German, a language he couldn't speak, but which was the mother tongue of his fellow astronaut, Dr Ludwig Reichenheim. It's a fantastic scene, sold by the urgent performance of Reginald Tater's Quatermass, and by Lamont's doleful, drawn countenance, unchanged as the fluent Teutonic sounds flow out of it. Sadly, we can only see these first two episodes, and so are missing much of the most dramatic and atmospheric stuff. But there's plenty to look out for. A terrific comedy old lady from Katie Johnson, 
just a couple of years before her BAFTA-winning turn in The Lady Killers. The gradual realisation that the yet-to-be-established sci-fi cliché of the infected astronaut is already being treated more intelligently than normal, in that Karun is more than a walking infection, but in fact an amalgamation of all three men from the ship, dissipated and reassembled into one stricken host. And the sense of creeping unease that gives way to an out-and-out state of emergency in the final episode. Doctor Who fans will enjoy looking out for the first TV performance of Murray Watson from Black Orchid and Mr Chin from The Claws of Axos, Peter Bathurst, as the third member and leader of Karoon's crew, Charles Green, whilst the later, sadly never-to-be-seen-again episodes feature a visit from Aztec High Priest of Knowledge Ortlock himself, Keith Pyatt, as a government minister. But sadly, his performance can only be imagined. The photobombing fly and various other factors meant that the later episodes of the Quatermass experiment were never recorded, so we'll just have to envision Karun's later metamorphoses, his desiccation of the bird life at St James's Park, and his final manifestation as writer Nigel Neal's hands draped in latex gloves and thrust through a blown-up photograph of Poet's Corner. But the script reads well, and the characters are great, from nervy scientist Patterson to politely dogged copper Lomax and Quatermass himself, a haunted, guilty scientist whose thirst for knowledge unleashes hell, and he knows it. Two years later, and the atmosphere and insidious creeping menace of the Quatermass experiment is augmented with a hefty dose of conspiracy thriller and location filming, some shots from which are simply replicated when Doctor Who rips them off, <clears throat> pays homage to them some years later. The opening episode of Quatermass 2 will look extremely familiar to anyone who has seen Spearhead from Space, Doctor Who's version of a tale about a gestalt alien entity landing, housed in meteorites, and then strategically replacing human authority figures. No wonder Neil was grumpy when it came to Doctor Who, too scary for the tots, threatening them with weapons that he had made. Quatermass 2 is the least celebrated of the three serials, partly because it loses its way a bit in its final episode, and also because John Robinson, replacing Reginald Tate, who died suddenly a couple of months prior to the commencement of a production he'd otherwise definitely have appeared in, seems to have opted to play Quatermass as if he's worried he's left the oven on and is suffering from indigestion. Actually, Robinson's dourness helps infuse the professor with the requisite melancholy, as Neil had clearly conceived him as a, inverted commas, troubled scientist, capital letters, frightened of what his advancements could unleash. So he has the dour gloom representative of our favourite Time Lord at his most introspective moments. He's not a fantastical character, Quatermass, or a mercurial presence. He is not the witty raconteur bohemian of time and space. He wanders the corridors of power in collar and tie, and no matter how much he annoys his superiors, he still fits in. The Quatermass universe is a serious place, and what humour there is comes from passing characters, cheerful workmen, stupid officials, gossipy pensioners. Neil's comedic streak 
is less sophisticated than his dramatic one, but he indulges it quite a lot, most successfully when good actors like Herbert Lomas and Wilfred Bramble are breathing life into his dogged working-class obsessives, but it's fair to say that the oh-my-gourd proles that populate the streets of Quatermassville probably date it more than anything else. Where Quatermass 2 really scores is in its paranoid depiction of alien menace in the halls of power. The alien beings have infected key personnel and lurk in every corner of Whitehall and beyond. There's a great scene where Quatermass, discussing with a government colleague the alien plant, which is supposed to be producing synthetic food, and is shown several photos. The same asks a pre-Megre Rupert Davis as a troublemaking, working-class firebrand politician, Vincent Broadhead. Quatermass concurs. Those were taken on an inspection flight over central Siberia, says Broadhead. That one? Brazil. Suddenly, our three men in a Whitehall room are minnows in the face of a worldwide incursion, with the added cynical kick that the plants are based on designs Quatermass himself has made to house mankind on the moon pilfered to turn the tables on ourselves. There's some fantastic location filming. Considering this is 1955, it's an epic production, and it is chock-full of brilliant moments. The revelation that the mark, the strange indentation left on the skin as a result of contact with the aliens, is visible in the highest offices of the land. The stricken man, caked in corrosive black ammoniac slime, leaving smeared marks down the side of the food tank as he stumbles down it. The discovery that the gas pipes being used to starve the alien creatures have been disabled by being stuffed with the pulp of human corpses. It's thrilling, grim stuff. Doctor Who fans will cheer, though, that the best moment of the whole serial comes from future Doctor Who star Roger Delgado, the first master, as a determined journalist trying to phone through a story about the encroaching alien menace as time runs out. It's a superb scene, and Delgado is brilliant. He also drives his own car in the serial, fact fans. If you like the unit years of Doctor Who, there's plenty for you in Quatermass 2. In fact, original Doctor Who producer Verity Lambert felt John Pertwee's Doctor was a bit too close to Quatermass. Pertwee's script editor, Terence Dix, responsible for introducing some lightness into those otherwise gritty, military hardware-boasting earthbound years, would cite Doctor Who's humour and fantasy as what separated the Doctor from the Professor, which is why Dix was never the hugest fan of Doctor Who's amazing Season 7. Because, and this is a fair observation, he felt that Pertwee's first year is closer to Neil's serials than it is to the spirit of Doctor Who. Interestingly, Dix and his assistant Trevor Ray had a look at the Quatermass experiment when preparing Earthbound Doctor Who and didn't think much of what they saw, surprised again at the comedic content enacted by the supporting cast. That said, Spearhead from Space isn't the only Season 7 story that Neil could justifiably be irritated by. The Ambassadors of Death has silent, spooky astronauts who turn out to be alien substitutes. They are also kidnapped by gangsters at some point too. There is much action on industrial buildings, which 
echo the groundbreaking, impressive location filming of cameraman Charles de Jaeger at the Shellhaven plant for Quatermass 2. Both Doctor Who and the Silurians and Inferno invoke ancient menace, the race memory that grips the stricken potholers in Doctor Who and the Silurians is an echo of a vital ingredient of Quatermass and the Pit, the third and best of the TV serials, and a definite contender for the title of best drama serial ever made by the BBC. It's quite extraordinary, and it definitely influences Doctor Who. The Demons, with its mixture of occult legend and science fiction, is an obvious relative. Whilst Azal the Demon influenced mankind's development for scientific reasons, the long-dead aliens of Mars dug up on a building site in Quatermass and the Pit have a far more sophisticated and insidious objective. Mankind's propensity for war and division along racial lines is given horrifying plausibility in a manner that is both thematically rigorous and scientifically rationalised. It's a great synthesis of rich science fiction ideas and gripping, horrifying storytelling that deserves its place in science fiction history as a genuine great. The ancient nature of the menace also explains ghost stories, legends and horror, and so science fiction and gothic terror meet in perfect harmony, creating a story that simply blows you away with the fertility of its imagination, the plausibility of its ideas and the dramatic application of both. It has all the futuristic excitement of science fiction and marries it with the most successful tropes of horror. The end of episode one of The Demons, with a BBC crew stricken by flying cables and chaos, echoes the end of Quatermass and the Pit, as media teams are similarly afflicted by all hell, literally breaking loose. In the Tom Baker story Image of the Fendal by Chris Boucher, Scientists also uncover a skull, this one 12 million years old. The magic number in Quatermass and the Pit is 5 million years. And the skull has a psychic effect on some of the humans, awakening a secret alien power which is tied with ancient magic. All of this suggests that the work of Nigel Neal is definitely a race memory in the Boucher family, as no one who has seen Quatermass and the Pit could be in any doubt where this melding of the occult and scientific gets its power. But the Quatermass inheritance continues to be passed down through the generations. David Tennant's The Impossible Planet, The Satan Pit, is definitely a story that has dug through Hobbes Lane in order to emerge. The idea that our gods and devils are aliens who have visited and influenced us continues to be a potent one. But it's no wonder. Quatermass and the Pit is seminal stuff, and not just because of its major themes. The bomb disposal squad called to supervise what had been an archaeological dig until what is assumed to be a bomb is dug up is also a pre-echo of the unit era. Except instead of jolly Captain Yates, we have the very serious northerner Captain Potter, played by a pleasant, handsome fellow who most fans will be gobsmacked to discover is Shockeye of the Quantzing Grig off of the two Doctors before he'd moved from the leading man to the character actor pages of Spotlight. One of his platoon of sappers is played by one Clifford Cox, who, in a lovely coincidental piece of casting, turns up as a unit sergeant in Spearhead from Space. 
Could we call it a crossover and make him the same character? Go on, why not? Neither gets a name. Also in Spearhead, Neil Wilson, who plays Poacher Seeley, discoverer of the meteorite at exactly the same camera angle a countryman does the same thing in black and white 15 years earlier in Quatermass 2, was the first policeman on the scene during the rocket's crash to Earth in the Quatermass experiment. John Stratton, Captain Potter, isn't the highest Who actor on the cast list of Quatermass and the Pit, though. John Robinson wasn't the only one unhappy with him being in Quatermass 2, so Andre Morel plays a much more clubbable, avuncular version of Professor Quatermass. Yeah, imaginative, groundbreaking Doctor Who, taking the risk of recasting your leading man. Quatermass did it every time! Morel would go on to be in Doctor Who's The Massacre, writing to his son, Jason, who was at boarding school at the time, to tell him what was happening in the adventure he was making. Young Jason, enraptured by Doctor Who, eventually followed in his father's footsteps and appeared in the Christmas special The Next Doctor as the vicar who meets his end in a snowy graveyard thanks to some Yuletide Cybermen. Morel is probably the most Doctor Who-y Quatermass. He's a tad more wry and eccentric than his predecessors, but it's a great performance, especially in the final episode in which the lead character is in the grip of destructive alien urges. He gets to say some great Doctor Who-esque lines as well. Captain Potter, you'd better warn your men. Things may happen. And what he just told us was a vision of life on the planet Mars five million years ago. Quatermass and the Pit also contains a superb performance from Richard Shaw as the drill operator Sladden, who proves to be susceptible to the influence of the mysterious hull found beneath five million year old fossil ape bones. The hull contains the psychic energy which brings back to life the dormant urges of the inhabitants of the planet Mars, insectoid creatures with a thing about racial purity. Shaw's all too plausible terror as he is gripped by the ancient visions, aping the gait of the long dead tripod creatures as chaos follows in his wake, makes for one of the most memorable sequences in science fiction ever and his subsequent bravery as he attempts to face his fear is moving in its touching simplicity. That Shaw played one of Doctor Who's least impressive villains, the rather bored Governor Lobos in the Space Museum, and then rather fleeting roles in his other two Doctor Whos, Dodgy Prisoner Cross in Frontier in Space and a bucket-headed robot in Underworld, make his remarkable performance here all the more noteworthy. He was also the first ever actor I wrote to, and the first to reply, and so kindly too, that he therefore created the monster you have before you now. If you haven't seen Quatermass and the Pit, then I would urge you to do so. But each Quatermass is definitely worth your time. It's where the BBC Visual Effects Department really cut their teeth. Legends Jack Kine and Bernard Wilkie learnt their trade as practically a two-man team. Peter Day joined them for Pitt and proved to be up to the challenge. Unlike Doctor Who, Quatermass was deemed to be rather prestigious, so Who fans used to the production values of our favourite show might be rather blown away by the size of the casts and the quality of the sets. But the Quatermass serials are spooky, clever, have some great performances in them, and now because they themselves are ancient relics, 
populated by the dead, have a mystique all their own. But like the baleful influence of the ancient Martians, the inheritance of Nigel Neal's seminal serials can be felt in our favourite show today. And I haven't even mentioned the Euston film's 1979 revival with Sir John Mills as Quatermass and, more importantly, a supporting cast including Borg, Tuar, Marvik Chen and the Pirate Captain. Oh, and then there's the live 2005 remake of the Quatermass experiment that I mentioned before that Mark Gatiss is in. It's the job David Tennant, playing Dr Gordon Briscoe in it, was doing when he found out he was going to be playing a rather more famous science fiction doctor sometime quite soon. Quatermass himself did nearly make it into Doctor Who, with Dougray Scott's character Alex Palmer in Hyde originally planned to be a pre-rocket group professor. Alas, the rights issues around the character of Quatermass are more complicated than attempting to rationalise why he keeps changing what he looks like, and so we never got the crossover that would have cemented the Professor's place as a bona fide part of the Hooniverse. That said, Hyde is very reminiscent of Neil's The Stone Tape. You've not seen that? Do so! And writer Neil Cross pays homage to the other Neil in his hit series Luther, which takes place at Hobbs Lane Police Station, a reference to the location of the unnerving discovery in the third series. In the film version of Quatermass and the Pit, which stars Wyler from Dalek's Invasion Earth 2150 AD as Professor Quatermass, and uh, Scaroth and Sarasta from Planet of Fire as well, Hobbs Lane becomes Hobbs End, a tube station, and so, like the Web of Fear, becomes a great piece of science fiction set in the London underground. The film was released in November 1967, and Doctor Who's The Web of Fear went to studio about six weeks later. <sighs> Mind the gap. Oh yes, a lifetime of watching Doctor Who will mean that you'll have so many elements of its predecessor lodged, buried, slumbering in your subconscious. You definitely need to have a look into Quatermass's pit. You'll dig it. Thank you for listening to I Wish Bernard Was Here, this week's edition of Indefinable Magic, a podcast about Doctor Who that was written and performed by me, Toby Haydock. The music for Indefinable Magic has been specially composed by Dominic Glynn. There is a Quatermass DVD box set featuring the three 1950s series available from the BBC and a more recent Blu-ray edition of Quatermass and the Pit featuring gloriously remastered original film inserts and a six-episode commentary hosted by me. If you enjoy and would like to support these podcasts, then please do so on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. It has different tiers and you can unlock bonus or early material, but generally it's a pay what you can or pay what you want model. If you don't want to do the monthly commitment thing, you can buy me a one-off coffee whenever you like at Kofi 
which is Kofi, K-O-F-I, kofi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. And please plug and rate these podcasts wherever you can. It just helps. Otherwise, I wouldn't have to record these awful pleading things at the end that everyone, including me, hates. Anyway, that's enough of that. I hope I've made your day a little better or more interesting than it was half an hour ago. If not, I'm ever so sorry. And until next time I attempt to do it, stay safe and well, and happy times and places to you and yours. And a shout-out to my latest patrons, Dave Hoskin, Reynard Toombs, ARCH Presents CIC, Paul Ingerson, James Lark, Keith Pirry, Lisa Gledhill, Dave Stevens, Lisa C. Greco, Simon Ash, Ian Gillespie, Andrew, Ruben Herfindahl, Tilt Areza, John Turner, Steve Hatcher, Darren Mackay, Martin Bellum, Tom Selinski, John Curley, and Robert Jewell. Next time on Indefinable Magic, Terror of the Onions. Thank you.